0: Listening to the ACB
1: Advocacy Update. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of ACB Advocacy Update. This is Claire Stanley, the Advocacy and Outreach Specialist here at the American Council of the Blind, and not actually sitting next to me, but virtually sitting next to me is
0: Clark Rockfall, Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for ACB. So, thank you to everyone who is streaming, downloading, listening, subscribing. Rating and reviewing this podcast via your favorite podcast player, as well as everyone out there in the ACB Radio Land. So, <laughs> welcome, welcome back. Uh, as always, you can learn more about ACB at, on our website at acb.org. And thank you to Sprint T Mobile for underwriting this podcast and all podcasts for the remainder of 2020.
1: Great. So we are excited to have a guest today. We have really been fortunate this last several weeks. We've had a great lineup of guests, and today will not disappoint, I promise. Um, So as background, today we're going to be talking all about digital accessibility, uh, which I personally think is great because we live in 2020, almost 2021, and technology is everywhere. It surrounds us. We interact with it work with work with play with school with everything you can imagine so we're going to be talking about what laws um, apply to digital accessibility to make accommodations for people with disabilities and just kind of what's going on in that realm so it's going to be a great discussion we are joined by Rachel Weisberg did I get that right Rachel? You did,
2: Rachel Weissberg. Yep.
1: Awesome. Um, To talk to us, uh, Rachel comes to us from one of the protection and advocacy offices out of the state of Illinois. Um, So without further
2: ado, Rachel, do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Hi, I'm so happy to be here and to be chatting with everyone. Um, I will say as a disclaimer, this is my first podcast. I love listening to podcasts. I've never been on a podcast, so I'm particularly (laughs) excited um, to have this opportunity today. Um, So as Claire mentioned I work at an organization called Equip for Equality. We are one of the nation's protection and advocacy agencies. Um, every state across the country has one of us has something called a PNA. Um, We are the one for the state of Illinois, but you may be familiar with the one by you, Um, often we're called things like disability rights and then the name of your state. So if you're in California, it's Disability Rights California. If you're in Texas, it's Disability Rights Texas. Um, but we're a national network of disability rights organizations all throughout the country, and we're under this umbrella called the National Disability Rights Network, or the N- NDRN. So if you're not familiar with your local chapter, you can go to NDRN's website, and you can, you'll be able to find the organization that's part of, of your state.
1: I must say, I think Illinois has one of the coolest names uh, out there for you guys DNA. So, <laughs> why?
2: Awesome. Thank you. We're, we're, we try to, you know, sometimes people contact us looking for equipment, but we do feel like, <laughs> um, you know, our name. We are equipping people for advocacy and legal strategies, and um, yeah, it's it's definitely here to stay.
0: <laughs> oh, Rachel is part of our conference and convention each year at ACB our members draft and vote on resolutions. And of course, those can be found on the ACB website at acb.org slash resolutions. And the first resolution for 2020 dealt with digital access and inclusion. Um, so that's really the, the crux of this issue. It's very important to our ACB members and by passing this resolution. They have raised their voices and directed ACB staff to make this a priority for our work as well. Um, But we really need to know what we are advocating for to be effective advocates. And that's why we're so happy that you are able to join us here today to help give us some background on what our nation's laws do and do not say about digital accessibility.
2: Absolutely, and I'll just uh, agree with your membership that digital (laughs) access is such an important um, issue. It's one that we in the disability community um, have been focused on, need to continue to focus on moving forward because as Claire said at the beginning, I mean we are in 2020, everything that we do these days is done digitally and until and unless all of this digital information is done in a way that's accessible to everyone it's 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 not going to serve its purpose right and so we're it's great that we have a lot of laws some that are general some that are specific about digital accessibility but it's definitely something that there's been a lot of focus on, but there needs to be even more, and I anticipate that there will be even more moving forward.
1: So let's talk about those laws then, of course. I think for most of us in the dis- disability community, the first law that always comes to mind is the Americans with Disabilities Act. So let's start there. You know, what, what is the ADA all about as it pertains to digital accessibility? You know, I think back, um, the ADA was passed in 1990. So technology was definitely around, but it obviously looked different than it does now in 2020. Um, so how does the ADA, um, it, how does it interplay with digital accessibility?
2: Um, Yeah, that's a great question. And you're absolutely right. The ADA is the law that we all think of when we start to think about our rights um, in the disability community. The ADA was passed in 1990. It is a federal anti-discrimination law with a broad mandate to ensure equal opportunity and equal access. Um, there There are five different titles of the ADA, and each title references a different part of the law, which is Kind of equates to a different part of um, our society and the different titles look at affect um, and uh, look at digital accessibility in a little bit of a different way. So let me start with titles two and title three, and those might be phrases that uh, many of you have heard before, but title two is the part of the ADA that applies to state and local governments. Um, We also sometimes call them public entities, but um, any state or local government is subject to Title II of the ADA. And Title II says that all programs, services, and activities of a state and local government need to be um, accessible and and there's non-discrimination requirements. And part of that is when we look at the ADA, um, as many of you know, in addition to having non-discrimination requirements the law goes kind of one step further and says sometimes we need to provide more affirmative or more proactive requirements to make sure that we're ensuring accessibility or non-discrimination so the way that that looks in some in, in part of title two is that there's a specific part of the law that says public entities need to provide, and I'm gonna throw some legal terms at you, need to provide auxiliary aids and services when necessary to ensure effective communication. So what does that mean? I like it. (laughs) (laughs) I know I had to throw in my legal my legal jargon, Um, but what does that mean? It basically means when we're when we're communicating something, regardless of how we communicate it, we need to communicate it using the communication tools for the blind community, the deaf community, any community that needs this information. It done in a slightly different way. So that's a really long standing principle, right? That's the reason that we have American sign language interpreters for people who are deaf. That's the reason that we need to provide Braille or audio tapes for for people who are blind. But that same concept means that we need to make sure that any information that's being communicated in a digital format, whether that's on a website or otherwise, has to be accessible. So it's basically when we talk about digital accessibility in the world of state and local governments, it's through this effective communication kind of framework. So that's Title II. Let's talk a little bit about Title Three, And this is a big area that I'm sure we're gonna spend a lot of time today talking about. But Title <laughs> Three applies to what's called places of public accommodation. So that's kind of our legal jargon for any sort of private business, not for profit. Um, you know, com- commercial facility places that are open to the general public um, that are private. So they're not run by a government; they're run by private entities. And there, we look at digital access kind of through the same lens. We, under Title III, also need to ensure that we're providing auxiliary aids and services necessary to ensure effective communication. So, when we have a Title III entity and they're providing information digitally, through websites, through anything else, we need to make sure that that is being provided in an effective, um, in in a way that ensures effective communication. Um, so the ADA, I think most of the time when we talk about digital access, we're talking about Title II and Title III entities. Um, and I don't want to get too much into it. Maybe we can talk about it a little bit later. But it's also really important to remember that under Title I of the ADA, um, there are protections for employees with disabilities and applicants with disabilities. And the law is set up a little bit differently, but we need to make sure that we're ensuring accessible Um, digital communications for applicants and employees as well, but that's all considered under Title I of the ADA. So how confusing was that? Do we need to clarify anything with the outline of the ADA? No, that's perfect. Let's dig deeper
1: a little bit. I agree. Title I is super, super important, but maybe we can go to that second. Going back to Titles II and Titles III, when we're talking about auxiliary aids and services, you gave great examples of kind of the the typical ones we would think of that are more I'll call them old school as far as you know braille and things like that but what might they look like in the digital world you know we we obviously live in an era where we do everything via email or 20 different apps on our phones um, so what might
2: um, auxiliary aids and services in the digital world look like sure and that's just ensuring that the information that's provided And in a digital format is accessible. So we can kind of dive into what that means and how to make this digital content accessible for people. I think in particularly people who use screen reading software or other sorts of assistive technology, Um, but there are specific ways that a website or other sorts of digital platforms can be formatted so that they're usable and readable and accessible to people using assistive technology.
0: And Rachel, talking about those website standards or guidelines, I think many of our listeners are familiar with um, the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines or WCAG from the World Wide Web Consortium. Um, What sort of legal standing do the WCAG or WCAG guidelines have when it comes to making accessible and usable uh, websites?
2: So that's a great, that's a great question. So um, when we look at, let's say that, let's take a step back and look at um, kind of a more traditional um, definition of accessibility. So when we look at um, ensuring that a building is physically accessible, and we have questions about what does that mean? How do we make that building accessible? You know, what Um, How do we ensure that there's no protruding objects or that doors are wide enough or all of the different things we need to figure out? One way we do that is by looking at the Department of Justice's regulations that are promulgated um, after the U.S. Access Board comes up with these standards. And that's essentially how we define accessibility. Now, when we look at the digital space, we don't have regulations, helping us understand what it means to be accessible. Um, there's a long history of this um, the the Department of Justice all the way back in 2010. Initiated its rulemaking process saying, you know, we are interested in figuring out how to define accessibility. In 2010, under the Obama administration, the Department of Justice published what's called an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking, essentially declaring that they wanted to move forward with the rulemaking process. Um, But unfortunately, after that, there were a lot of different delays. Fast forward to 2014, 2015, there were some additional plans to publish the notice of proposed rulemaking. Again, there were additional delays. Fast forward to 2017, those rules were placed in an inactive status. And then in 2017, under the Trump administration, those rules were withdrawn. So as a practical matter, what that means for all of us is that there are no regulations now from the Department of Justice and there aren't going to be in the very near future. So what do we do when we don't have regulations? Does that mean we just throw up our hands and say, well, there's no regulations, we can't apply the law? No, we don't do that. And actually there's been courts that say we don't do that and we can dive into some of those cases. The Department of Justice themselves has said we don't do that. But what do we do? We need something, right? And so we look to more of these voluntary industry standards. And so the WCAG reference that you made is exactly what, Everyone has been looking to. Um, so, what we're seeing in a lot of settlement agreements and in some court decisions is because we don't have these DOJ standards. Um, when we're trying to define what does it mean to be accessible, what does a business need to do, how do we comply as a practical matter, folks have been turning to WCAG. Um, for some time, we were looking at WCAG 2.0 Level AA. Um, Recently, the, the consortium has updated those standards, and so now we're at level 2.1. And what we've seen in the last year or so is that more settlement agreements are using that as the standard to help us understand what accessibility means. Mm-hmm. Um, would I, would I, maybe this is a good time to dive into one case, if that's, if that's okay, and that's the Robles case. Yeah, um, please. Is this a good time for that? Please, Yeah. Okay. So the Robles case is a really interesting case. It's a case called Robles versus Domino's Pizza, and it's a case out of California. Now, this case, in some ways, looks very similar to a lot of these other digital access website cases that we see across the country. The case was brought by a blind plaintiff, Mr. Robles. He um, was attempting to access um, Domino's Pizza's website and mobile app. He used Jaw software, um, as I'm sure many listening do. He also used the iPhone voiceover program, which I'm sure many people do. But he wasn't able, using Jaw software and using the voiceover, to access Domino's website and mobile app because it wasn't programmed in a way that was accessible. So he filed a lawsuit under Title III of the ADA. And again, remember it's Title III because Domino's is a private business. And he also filed under some state laws. Now, what happened is that Domino's filed what's called a motion to dismiss. And what that means is they said, you know, we should not even look at this case. We shouldn't litigate it. We shouldn't do discovery. This case should go away right away because Mr. Robles has no legal right to proceed. Um, And what Domino's argued was that was that his lawsuit violated what's called due process principles. Basically, what Domino's argued was that because the Department of Justice does not have regulations about website accessibility, it would be unfair to hold Domino's liable because they don't even know what it means to be accessible. They don't know what accessibility means. And so it would violate their, the Domino's due process rights. Um, Well, I will tell you that that is an argument that had been raised in a handful of other cases across the country and no other court bought it, but what happened in this case is that the court agreed and the court said you're right, we do think that this violates their due process rights and so they dismissed the case. And they even had this language that the court concludes that by calling on Congress, the Attorney General and the Department of Justice to take action to set minimum web accessibility standards for the benefit of the disabled community, those subject to Title III and the judiciary. Now, that was a huge shock to, I think, everyone who is working on these types of cases. So that wasn't the end of the story. Um, and the reason why is that that was a decision at the district court level or the trial court level. But if you're a plaintiff and you don't like a decision at the district court or trial court level, you have the right to file an appeal. And that's exactly what Mr. Robles did. So he filed an appeal to the Ninth Circuit and that's the circuit that's out on the West Coast, um, which was the relevant circuit because Mr. Robles of course was from in California. So when they when when um, Mr. Robles filed an appeal uh, to, the, to the Ninth Circuit, This is an opportunity where a lot of different advocacy organizations can file what's called an amicus brief, and they, it's called a friend of the court brief, where they tell the court what they think, and as you can imagine, there were so many amicus briefs filed on all sides of this, including a ton from various disability rights groups, including the ACB, um, and the NDRN, which is, again, the parent organization of of my organization. So what's really interesting is that while this case was pending before the Ninth Circuit, um, there was a letter that the Department of Justice published. So what happened was a group of legislators from Congress came together and they wrote a letter to the attorney general. And they urged the Department of Justice to state publicly that private legal action under the ADA about websites is unfair and violates basic due process principles because there was no clear Rule about what final or what website accessibility meant, and I think that this group of of, of Congress people really thought that they were going to get a positive, you know, kind of comment from the Department of Justice, um, which you know is fairly pro business at this time. And what was really surprising is that the Department of Justice then responded in a letter in September of 2018, and this letter they said that. They said it was they basically had an unequivocal response stating that the ADA does, in fact, apply to websites. Um, And the Department of Justice said that they first articulated its interpretation that the ADA applies to websites, public accommodations websites over 20 years ago, and that the absence of a specific regulation does not mean that there's no um, that 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 the absence of a specific regulation does not serve as a basis of non-compliance with the statute's requirements. And That's so powerful. really, really, really powerful stuff. Absolutely. Um, and the DOJ also said, look, you know, this is a private business. It's a public accommodation. They have some flexibility about how to comply with these regulations, but they can't just, again, throw up their hands and say, well, we have no regulations. There's nothing that we can do. So, you know, that kind of set the stage for this argument at the Ninth Circuit, which for legal, uh, I don't know if nerds is the right word, but this is the (laughs) the argument before the Ninth Circuit was one of the most interesting ones that I've that I've heard. It was when you have an argument before an appellate court, you have three different judges and they're all um, the lawyer goes up and presents their argument and they're just constantly being interrupted and questions are asked. Um, And the lawyer for Mr. Robles um, spoke and they also the NFB also had a lawyer and she was able to explain a lot of the history. Um, It was really, really interesting. And ultimately, the Ninth Circuit issued a decision that was favorable to Mr. Robles, reversing and remanding that decision and had a whole bunch of really um, important holdings. But I guess to, to this point about the due process, the court. Essentially said that that district court argument was ridiculous. They said, if you look at the ADA, you know, it's not vague. The Department of Justice has been clear on its position for over 20 years that the ADA applies. And, you know, the plaintiff in this case wasn't asking Domino's to necessarily comply with WCAG. But it does say WCAG is a possible remedy. Um, And so that kind of left open the possibility that, look, if there are other website accessibility standards out there, and they serve the purpose of ensuring accessibility, then it's not that a business has to comply with WCAG. But they have to make sure that their websites are accessible. And right now, as a practical matter, WCAG really is the only game in town when we look at what does it mean to be accessible. So that was a very, very long answer to your question. Um, but I think a really interesting case that is helpful to help us get some context about where we're at in terms of, you know, the legal standards um, and whether WCAG is the, is kind of the, the the way to go. Oh, and I'll just, I'll just throw in one other thing is that for some time, there was also a lot of organizations out there that were looking at section 508, which is another law that we can talk about. Um, but recently, Section 508 has been, they called it a Section 08 refresh, and it has essentially adopted WCAG 2.0 level AA. And so even for those organizations that are looking at WCAG, or I'm sorry, looking at Section 508, they really are looking at WCAG just like um, just like everyone else's.
0: I guess before we jump into the section 508 of the Rehabilitation Act, um, just to finish up on Robles v. Domino's, and Guillermo Robles is a member of the California Council of the Blind, um, our California state affiliate. Much like Mr. Robles was able to appeal the, um, the lower court decision, was there an appeal filed after the Ninth Circuit's decision? In the Robles v.
2: Domino's yes, case, yes, and I'm I'm so glad you that you asked. So <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> There's so much we could say about this. It's hard to know. It's hard to know when to stop. Um, but yeah. So after the Domino's decision in the Ninth Circuit, um, so Domino's at this point wasn't happy, just in the same way that Mr. Robles wasn't happy at the, at the early stages. And so what. When you don't like a decision at the district court level, um, you have um, an essential right to appeal to an appellate court judge. That's something that no one really can grant or take away. You have the right to, to do that appeal. Once an appellate court has issued a decision, the next level of appeal is usually going to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, as you can imagine, many, many, many people want to go to the U.S. Supreme Court, and that's not something that you can do as a matter of right Instead, the way it works is that a party who doesn't like the decision can file what's called a petition for cert or cert- certiorari, where they ask the U.S. Supreme Court to hear the case. Um, now, there was a lot of fear in the disability community about what would happen if this case went up to the Supreme Court, and um, so Domino's did seek a petition for cert, um, and. It ultimately was denied. So the Supreme Court said we do. We're not going to listen to this case. We're not going to hear this case. And so what that means is that the Ninth Circuit decision remains good law. Um, and so it's possible that at some point in, the, in our future, we will have a case about digital accessibility that makes it all the way to the Supreme Court, but it's not going to be this one because the Supreme Court has, de- has denied cert in this case.
1: Rachel, can you kind of, again, maybe I'm going too much into my legal nerdiness, but the Ninth Circuit is only one circuit, and so this is the standing right now as far as the Ninth Circuit is um, concerned, but we have several other circuits throughout the U.S. Can you talk about some of the decisions that have been applied in different circuits and how they might compare and contrast as far as digital accessibility goes. I know it's not a uniform um, application thus far, and so it does make it a little murky as far as it goes um, throughout the country.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I will say about that particular issue, about the issue of due process and whether or not You know an entity has to ensure digital accessibility even without regulations um that ninth circuit case once we were at the district court level was a bit of an outlier so if you looked at all of the other cases across the country there really weren't any other cases saying that an entity did not have to provide digital accessibility um just because there were no regulations and so even though that decision was in the ninth circuit and only is precedential, meaning it only has to be followed by lower courts in the Ninth Circuit, um, there's really nothing that states the contrary outside of the Ninth Circuit. So I'm pretty confident saying that I think that's pretty much the law um, across the country that, um, you know, that these entities need to provide digital access, even though we don't have regulations. Um, But you're absolutely right. One of the big legal issues of our time is an issue that There is a bit of a differential in the different circuits, Um, and that question is whether websites and public accommodations are even covered by Title III of the ADA. Um, I want to do a quick differential in that you know we talked about this difference of title two and title three there really is no question at all about whether a state and local government needs to make their websites accessible because when you look at the requirement that state and local governments provide program services and activities in an accessible way and that phrase program services and activities have been really broadly applied courts Tons of courts across the country have said that really applies to everything a state and local government entity does, so I have not seen any courts saying a public um, entity, a state or local government does not need to make their website accessible. So just kind of putting that aside. So this conversation that we're going to talk about is really focused exclusively on Title three, these private entities. Um, and so, a little bit of the background is that when you look at the text of the ADA, you don't see the word website, right? And you don't see the word internet. Um, you again have these general requirements that we're ensuring effective communication, we're providing auxiliary aids and services, but we don't see the word website or internet or digital access. So, is that surprising? No, right. I mean, the web, the ADA, of course, was passed in 1990, and the the world as we know it is a much, much different place. <laughs> but what's happened because of that is that there's some question about whether Title III of the ADA even applies to. Um, wh- whether whether, web, uh, whether um, requirements for websites even are applied to Title Three of the ADA or whether the ADA even applies to website accessibility, I'm kind of saying it a lot of different ways, this, meaning the same thing. And the reason why is that, the reason why is that when you look at what is covered by Title Three of the ADA, it has to be a place of public accommodation. So what do you think about when you think of the word place? Well, arguably, you could think of a typical brick and mortar structure, right a physical place. Um, And the way that Title III is defined is by a list of different categories Um, And each of these categories has a number of different examples, So, and a lot of them are physical spaces. So just to give an example, one example of one of these categories says that, um, you know, a place of public accommodation is a motion picture house, theater, concert hall, stadium, or other place of exhibition or entertainment. So again, it's kind of conjuring up this image of physical spaces. And so there has been some question of if title 3 applies to places what does that mean for something where there is no physical space it only you know it's we're we're talking about a digital structure we're talking about something that appears online what does that mean so Again, the Department of Justice has had a long standing position that the ADA is going to apply. It doesn't matter. As long as the content of what's being discussed is one of these 12 categories, it doesn't matter if it's part of this physical space or not. However, the courts have had differing opinions. And Claire, as you said, um, there are differences depending on where the decisions are, because there are these different circuits across the country. So. Um, let me go over a couple of the different more pervasive legal theories. One legal theory, and this is a theory that's out of the first circuit which is out east, it's also the theory in the seventh circuit which is where I am in Illinois, and that is that a website can be a place of public accommodation even without a physical structure so long as the services being provided Otherwise fit into the definition of public accommodation. So I would call this like the most liberal, the most expansive interpretation of Title three. Um, And I'll give you an example of this type of case. Um, And this is actually one of the very first cases about website accessibility was a case brought against Netflix. It was brought by the National Association of the Deaf and it was brought in Massachusetts in 2012. And what happened in this case is that Netflix, which we all know and love, was starting to stream content called Watch Instantly. I think it was like at the beginning of the streaming world before it's pretty much all we all do now. But unfortunately for the deaf community, none of this content had closed captions, so Netflix brought a lawsuit under Title III of the ADA saying this is a violation of the ADA's effective communication requirements. Well, Netflix filed a motion to dismiss, just like we talked about earlier in the Domino's case. And Netflix said, we don't have a physical space, right? We, you don't walk into Netflix, you don't drive up to Netflix. Netflix does not have a brick and mortar establishment. We exist only on the internet, only in this digital space. So we are not covered by the ADA. Well, the court disagreed because again, they use this broad expansion of what place of public accommodations really mean. And the court said, places of public accommodation, are not limited to actual physical structures. And Netflix falls within at least one, if not more of the enumerated 88 categories. And so they said, look, that Netflix could be a place of entertainment, right? It's entertaining us. It could be a rental establishment. It could be a service establishment. All of these things could make it a place of public accommodation, even though it doesn't have a physical structure. So that's the group that I would say is kind of the most expansive, the most um, liberal definition of public accommodation. Um, any questions about that? And then, Otherwise we'll dive into the next, in the next kind of category. So we like the first and seventh circuit, awesome. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) right, good. That's the take home point, this is the synopsis. (laughs) Um, Okay, so then the next grouping I call kind of the intermediary grouping, and this is kind of a weird one. So there's a group of courts out there that say that websites can be places of public accommodation if there's a nexus to an actual physical place of public accommodation. Okay, so what does that mean? That means, actually, the Mr. Mr. Robles' case is a great example of that. So Domino's Pizza, undisputably, is a traditional place of public accommodation, right? We can go in, buy our pizza, sit down, order our toppings, whatever we want to do. Well, if you go on Domino's website, you could order your pizza. Um, And so you could go on the website, you could select the toppings, you could basically do something that's going to create a gateway or a nexus to this physical place of public accommodation. And so this group of logic is that as long as there's some sort of connection between this website and the physical place of public accommodation, then the ADA is going to apply. And there's lots of different circuits um, and courts that that use that framework. Um, and I'll give you one example. In addition to Mr. Relace's case, there's a case called Gomez versus general nutrition corporation. And this was a case brought in Florida in 2018. And this, um, And in there, the plaintiff argued that there was a nexus to the physical store, because if you went on GNC's website, you could purchase products, you could learn about the sales, you could find the stores, you could also buy products remotely. And so as long as, again, there was some sort of connection between the website and the physical place, you're good to go. You have the nexus. Make sense? Or at least quasi makes sense? Any questions about that one? Sounds good.
1: Okay.
0: So, Rachel, what if there was a a situation kind of in that nexus, but a private entity offered a a sale or a coupon online, but not necessarily in store, or you had to um, activate it online versus just going into the physical store?
2: Definitely a nexus. I'd say that is definitely an excess. as long as there's some connection between what you can do online and what you can do in the store. I think you, I think you're there.
0: Are there other examples of different uh, various opinions in other circuits?
2: Yeah, there sure are. So there's one final, um, well, kind of two final examples. Um, the last thing ex- um, Actually, I'm sorry. Just one final example. And I guess let me just say that the nexus issue um, is one that is, I think it's, it's okay when you have a private business that also has a physical brick and mortar location, but it's really problematic when we look at a, um, a a company that exists only online. So I was going to say, we live in an era now where things are going more and more
1: online only.
2: Absolutely. Exactly. And that's really problematic because like, let let me just give you an example. So, you know, we just talked about this Netflix case out in Massachusetts where um, the court found that nexus, that, that the ADA applied to Netflix, even though it didn't have a, you know, a brick and mortar establishment. Well, what's fascinating is that California is one of the jurisdictions that has this nexus requirement. Um, just months after the National Association of the Deaf brought a lawsuit, there was another plaintiff who brought a lawsuit against Netflix. And I'm not kidding you when I say it was almost exactly the same facts. It was also about closed captioning. It was also about the Swatch instantly. But the difference is that instead of bringing this case out in Massachusetts, this individual brought the case out in California. And guess what happened under this netflix requirement and under this nexus netflix and nexus are very hard to say in the same sentence (laughs) but under the nexus requirement there the court said hey netflix has no nexus to an actual physical space and that's what required by the ninth circuit precedent and so we're so sorry plaintiff in this case you cannot bring your case forward which to me, is just such a, a, a stark example of the differences between the different circuits when we have two exactly same fact patterns and two exactly different court resolutions. Little <laughs> <right>? <laughs> a little disconcerting, right? A little disconcerting. You know, as lawyers, I would say, you know, we all – we, for a place like Netflix, where you could file anywhere, it's kind of confusing why a case would have been filed about this in California, given the state of that law, because Netflix, of course, applies, you know, is, is um, uh, exists across the country. I um, mean, you know, a side note, the good thing about the Netflix case is that after that positive decision in Massachusetts, Netflix agreed to make, um, uh, to provide closed captioning on all of its streaming content. And so that other case ultimately didn't have a negative impact on the deaf community. But of course, it is a troubling case that that is out there. The only last kind of um, way that sometimes courts look at this, and this is like a little bit of a confusing one and a little bit technical, but sometimes what courts say is that when you look at what Title III applies to, it applies to services of a place of public accommodation, not just services in a place of public accommodation. And it's these, you know, the difference between the word of and the word in. Essentially, I think it, you know, it's it's somewhat similar to this nexus argument in that it's saying that if you have a place of public accommodation, and they're using a website or a mobile app to provide their services, then you're covered by the ADA. But again, it has to still be this place of public accommodation. So a little bit of a nuance of the the nexus argument. Um, And we see a little bit of an overlap there. That language is actually also used in the Robles case. And Rachel, earlier
0: you touched on uh, Section 508 of the Rehabilitation Act. Can you quickly go through um, what that means for uh, website accessibility?
2: Yeah, of course. So the Rehabilitation Act of course, is another anti-discrimination law that protects the rights of people with disabilities. And there's lots of different sections that make up the Rehab Act. So folks may be familiar with section 504. It's a term we hear a lot. Um, People have, of course, 504 plans when they're in school and there's 504 coordinators. Well, 504 is a section of the Rehabilitation Act, and in many ways, it's just like the ADA. It provides anti-discrimination protections, um, but it's more limited in that Section 504 applies only to entities that receive federal financial assistance, and so all of the principles we just talked about about the ADA would also apply under 504 if an entity received federal financial assistance, so that's Section 504. There's also another section, Clark, as you just mentioned, called Section 508. Um, That's another section of the Rehabilitation Act, and that section is specific about digital accessibility. Um, Now, that's even more narrow in scope because it only applies to federal agencies when they develop, procure, maintain, or use electronic information technology. So if we're looking at the federal government, they obviously do so many different types of programming and services. Um, The federal government's own information needs to be provided in an accessible way. And as I mentioned, Section 5, 5, there used to be something called 508 standards, which helped us define what it meant to have um, accessibility. And now that's essentially the same as WCAG 2.0.
1: So... We talked a lot about uh, the WCAG standards and how, even though they're not officially the regulations of the the US government, it's something we've, you know, we, we see used a lot totally throwing you under the bus because it's fun we are about to have potentially a new administration it we are recording this i should say for the record on uh, november 6th so we still don't know who our president will be do you potentially see regulations coming in a new administration do you think that's a good thing a bad thing an indifferent thing
2: um, yeah, so you're not throwing me under the bus. It's a question that we've been asking ourselves for <laughs> a decade now, right? So, um, you know, I'm I I personally um, speaking on behalf of myself and, <laughs> and myself only, um, I am hopeful that we would have some sort of um, clear regulations. Um, and I think the reason why, and I guess I w- I would think that if we had regulations. To be quite honest that they would be WCAG either 2.0 or as time goes on 2.1 and and more so um because again as a practical matter that is what's out there and it's been working for, for for places and From what we can tell you know again the government with 508 did adapt wcag and there's also um the air carrier access act which is a whole different law that applies um to air you know air carriers Um, but there the air carrier access act also incorporated wcag in its own regulations and so there i think there's When we look at where do we think the government's going, I think there's reason to believe that that's the WCAG would be the direction that the government's going. Um, And the other reason I would say is that oftentimes, you know, the Department of Justice, even if they don't have regulations, they are still actively working on these issues. There's a whole, you know, really robust Disability Rights Section in the Civil Rights Division of the U.S. Department of Justice, and they're still doing settlement agreements. And a lot of the settlement agreements about digital accessibility do require compliance with WCAG 2.0. Um, I, I, as we sit here today, I don't recall if I've seen any DOJ ones that have gone to 2.1. Um, that might be private settlements, but that's definitely still the world that we're that we're living in, and that DOJ is looking at WCAG. Um, so do I think that regulations would be a good thing? Um, I think anything that helps kind of take the uncertainty away is is probably a good thing. But I, of course, would want to make sure that the regulations were well done and thoughtful and robust. Um, but I would be optimistic that they would be.
0: All right. Claire, I think now we should get to have a little fun with a a lightning round with Rachel.
2: Uh-oh. And
0: Uh-oh. yeah, Ooh, I, I know. Like it. It's and scary. by this, I mean... So let's say I am a job seeker, and I am applying for a job with the federal government through USA Jobs. Does that need to be accessible? And what title of the ADA would that fall under?
2: Okay. Okay. I would say yes, that needs to be accessible. And I would say it's a trick question because it does not fall under any title of the ADA. The federal government is not covered by the ADA. It is covered by the rehabilitation act. So it would be covered by section 508. Nice. He wasn't tricked by that one. one. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Awesome. (laughs) Now what if I was applying for a job on a commercial um, website
2: Ooh, tricky. We're back in the ADA world. Um, the ADA applies to any employer that has 1, one five, or more employees, and that would be covered by Title One of the ADA. And I'd say issues about accessible applications are really interesting, and here's why. Traditionally, under the under Title One. If we want to have something be a little bit different or more accessible, we as people with disabilities need to ask for it as a reasonable accommodation. So the traditional thought process would be that if somebody applies for a job and the job application process isn't configured in a way to be accessible with a screen reader or mobile device, we would have to reach out to the employer and ask for that to be made accessible as a reasonable accommodation under the ADA. Mm -hmm. Well, there has been some line of thought about how that feels unfair, right? It requires us to disclose in a way that we may not want to disclose at that early point in the process. And it may be a deterrent for people to apply for jobs, um, so far, I have I don't believe I've seen any cases addressing whether the application itself is um, an inaccessible application is a violation of the ADA without somebody requesting an accommodation. But that's definitely a case I would be interested to consider. Um, but I I think definitely absolutely if somebody attempted to apply for a job asked for a reasonable accommodation of an accessible application and either didn't get it or pretty much got deterred from applying or immediately rejected, that would be um, problematic under Title I of the ADA.
0: And Rachel, one final variant of that question. What if the job listing um, in the application was submitted to a third party and not necessarily the employer themselves?
2: interesting so i would say that employers have an obligation to ensure that their com- that their application processes are accessible so the fact that they are contracting that obligation away to a third party wouldn't it take away that obligation or that requirement and then i'd also say it might be that that third party if they're like a temp agency it's possible um, that they may have their own obligations under title one of the ADA. So oftentimes we see situations where there's either a joint employer or there's some type of employment relationship between two different entities. Um, I have an interesting case right now that is not about, it, it's about um, accessibility on a job application process, but it's on behalf of clients who have autism and it is, it's against this It's, it's against a government, but it does. it's against two different parts of the government because it's about how they interplayed with each other. And so it's easy for defendants, I think, and employers to kind of point fingers and say, it's your responsibility, it's your responsibility. But ultimately, it's kind of everybody's responsibility, and they need to work together to make sure that we have accessible application processes.
0: And I mean, I could just keep going with this all day. Keep going. It's uh, fun. I, okay, good, good. <laughs> all right, I am hired. I am working, um, but my employer uses third-party software that is inaccessible. Um, whose responsibility is it, and how do we make sure that that third-party vendor? Uh, software or web application is accessible.
1: Such a familiar
2: story. <laughs> <laughs> that's never happened. That's just never. a total hypothetical that's that has not happened to anyone, right? Yeah, I mean, that's that's obviously a very, very, very common fact scenario. Um, the answer from an ADA perspective is that the employer is ultimately responsible under Title I of the ADA. But what that means is that if they have software that's not accessible, the employee, of course, would want to alert the employer to that and ask for some sort of reasonable accommodation under the ADA. Now, reasonable accommodations can be any job change or modification that helps somebody do their job or enjoy the benefits and privileges of their job or access an application process. Um, There are some limitations on what an employer has to do. So an employer doesn't have to provide an accommodation if it would be a fundamental alteration or it would cause an undue hardship. So what does that mean as like a practical matter? It means that the employer has a real obligation to try to figure it out to be a problem solver, to try to put some pressure on that vendor, to look at some more workarounds, to try to find accessible software. Basically, the employer has an obligation to try to accommodate the employee and needs to do its very best to try to figure out how to make that happen. Vendors often do not have standalone responsibility under the ADA. And so it's up to employers, it's up to businesses to put that business pressure onto the vendors to say, we're not going to buy your products if they're not accessible. And I really, um, really encourage and urge employers and businesses not to wait until you have a blind applicant or blind employee to do that because then you're getting into this predicament and it's much harder. But when you're acquiring new technology When you're going through an RFP process, that's the time to assess whether your technology is accessible, Um, because, you know, it's much harder to to kind of do a retrofit. Um, And your question also reminded me of a really interesting case out of Maryland called and, and if you know if you know her, and she's an ACB member, hopefully you can help make sure I'm pronouncing her name right, but it's the Ray Azudin case versus Montgomery County, Maryland. And this was a case brought on behalf of a blind employee who had worked for Montgomery County for years as an information and referral aid. And Montgomery County had opened a new call center, and what did they do? Well, they new software and lo and behold the new software was not accessible and so while all of her all of the plaintiffs co-workers were transferred to this new place she wasn't and she was just kind of given makeshift work to do because she wasn't able to access the software and so she filed a lawsuit under the ada saying that montgomery county failed to accommodate her and discriminated against her by failing to transfer her to a new call center in this case Um, was up to the Fourth Circuit, found in her favor, and then a jury ultimately found for the plaintiff saying that she was discriminated against by refusing to transfer her to the call center and that they could have found reasonable accommodations to make the call center software accessible. So it's definitely um, a fact situation that happens a lot. And it's one that for any employers who are listening, we wanna be proactive and only get accessible software. And for all employees, you know, we do have an obligation to bring these issues to our employer's attention and to work with them through the interactive process to try to find a possible reasonable accommodation.
1: So, Uh, Rachel, you just made a great point that um, employers or companies should be proactive in making sure that their software is accessible. Are there resources out there for people to know, hey, is my, you know, we talked about WCAG, so to say, hey, is our product even accessible? I think a lot of people are kind of, you know, caught in the headlights and go, what does that even mean? So are there resources that companies can look into to even begin the process of assessing their their systems?
2: Um, yeah, there, there are. Um, there are some automated processes that could be a, I would say, a very, very preliminary first step. Um, we never want to rely exclusively on pre- on these types of automated processes because they can't catch everything. But again, it's an OK first step. Um, And maybe I can send some specific websites and links along to, to go with this podcast um, because there are, you know, a number of different um, options out there. There's also a lot of organizations that do user testing. And I'd say that the combination between automated and user testing is really important because users kind of bring that human element to it. And a good example is um, one one big barrier that I know we all see is that um, there could be an image for instance and that image doesn't have an alt text that you know is, is including a narrative that describes what that image is well if you run a website through an automated test that automated test might be able to detect whether or not there is an alt text but it might not be able to say if that alt text is accurate or you know sufficient. And so that's just one example of why sometimes having user testing is also is also really important. Mm-hmm. Um, so another there's an organ or a, I guess one website that could be used is called the Web Accessibility Evaluation Tool. The website is WAVE, W-A-V-E dot Um, And also the World Wide Web Consortium, w3.org, has a whole different list of different sites that can assess website accessibility. So I say all of that, again, with the caution that none of these online tools are perfect. Um, Definitely better to do them in conjunction with some user testing. And I'll also put in a plug for the ADA National Network. Um, The ADA National Network has free technical assistance on some certain website accessibility issues, they provide free legal or not free legal free technical assistance on those issues. And you can access your, um, your regional ADA center by going to www.adata.org or you can call 1-800-949-4232.
1: Great. Thank you so much. Those are great, great resources for everybody to be aware of.
0: And Rachel, a great conversation. Thank you so much for uh, your insights and in this background. I know we we focused a lot on websites and especially under title two or title one, title two, and title three of the ADA, as well as section five oh eight of the rehabilitation act. I feel like we could do whole other podcasts on education, healthcare, uh, and just other other venues and other circumstances for digital accessibility and inclusion.
1: I think that's his way of telling you that we're going to ask you back in the future, Rachel.
2: (laughs) You know, I would love to come back. Um, I love talking about this. And these are really, really important topics. And I, I want to give one additional resource for all of your listeners. And this is, I think, my personal favorite resource to stay up to date on digital access. Um, folks listening may know who Lainey Feingold is, but she's my one of my personal disability rights heroes. Um, and she has an incredible website. If you go to um, L F as in LaineyFeingoldLegal.com. She has up-to-date information about all sorts of digital access issues, all sorts of resources. Um, she has a list of consultants as well. So for any employer business types that are listening, that is a great place to start. Um, so definitely um, check out her website.
0: And a great friend
2: of ACV. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. She's done so much with ACV over the years.
1: Great. Well, thank you again, Rachel. I know I really uh, enjoyed this and learned a lot and I'm sure all of our listeners will do the same.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much.
1: Um, As always to our listeners, if you have any issues that you need assistance with, including digital issues, but anything, you can always reach out to us at advocacy at acb.org. That's advocacy at acb.org. And Clark and I are always checking that email account to see how we might be able to help you. And Clark seems to have gone quiet. So we will end the podcast by saying thank you again so much for everybody for attending. Um, Reach out if you have any issues. Um, And we will uh, hear you guys next time. And as we always say when we end our podcast, because we know just how important it is, keep advocating.